Hello, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and we have a really, really fun episode for you this week. I know we say that every time, but it's true every single time. This week, we're going to be talking about actual scripts and some, some, some really, really hard work that a bunch of our Mythgard um, community have been doing on taking our uh, um, very, very blurry and ill-conceived notions of story and turning them into actual outlines. And this is really, really fun for us because this is where sort of the rubber hits the road, where we start to, um, um, you know, seeing sort of more concrete manifestations of our grand vision. And also, it's always really, really great to engage you, our listeners and our community, and the Mythgard folks in general. So, without further ado, let's get started. I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien maven Trish Lambert and the Tolkien professor Corey Olson, and we have, like, a whole bunch of very special guests today. Absolutely. So, uh, I would like to start by just kind of recognizing people, the people who have been at work on this. We've been talking about this here and there during different episodes that we've been doing about uh, the, the, the team that's gotten together to actually flesh out our ideas into these into these outlines they're not yet full scripts but they're uh, but they're scene by scene outlines uh, of all 13 episodes of season number one really grateful for all the work that you guys have done so the first thing I want to do is make sure that we introduce everybody um, and uh, Nick Palazzo you've really uh, sort of been the, the 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 chief mover of this project one of the people who's really been working on it all the way through um, and you're also one of those who is here with us here today could you introduce people and just kind of uh, uh, tell everybody a little bit about, uh, you know, who's been involved in this. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, I think the the person who deserves the credit for starting this this uh, whole expedition was actually Brian, mm-hmm. who's here with us today. Uh, he's the one who was like, "Okay, guys, we definitely need to start doing something because clearly we're going to run out of time if we don't." Um, <laughs> Uh, Marie, who's who's not uh, audible with us, but she she uh, she is listening. Uh, she has been probably my 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 staunchest ally as uh, we've been putting this together. She's probably been present for more sessions than anybody else besides myself. Um, Karita. Uh, Karita Alexander, who's who's uh, audible with us as well, she has um, she's been uh, she's only been on camera once, but she's been present for almost every single session, giving her giving her comments, and also in the one or two sessions where I was alone for all or most of the whole thing, she was there to keep me from losing my mind as I appeared <laughs> blanking into a camera, trying to come up with things to say so I didn't sound like a moron. Um. Who else? Philip was there for the for the first episode. Hopped in for the second. Um, Hakon uh, took a lot of what we did and put it into the outlines that we sent to you. Which, by the way, I am resending episodes twelve and thirteen to both of you at the email addresses that I have. Um, <coughs> let's see, let's see, let's see. I don't want to. I don't want to forget. It. Oh, and Alex, Alex jumped in at the in, for the last few episodes. Um, he was. Instrumental in uh, in helping us do the Asain um, Fall of Asain Myron episodes, mm-hmm. um, and also he was the only one, him and Karita were the only ones with me when we did episode um, episode twelve, leading up to the war to begin all wars. 
I loved episode 12. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, many thanks to everybody. It's been really exciting to see people get involved, to see, uh, uh, you know, how, you know, people have been kind of, uh, you know, jumping into this project and really seizing these ideas. I had such a wonderful time reading the outlines you guys have made up. Um, you know, it's, it's really fun to, to sort of see, you know, this, this story and these ideas that we've been talking through and kind of investing ourselves in to see them kind of gain this, this, this sort of independent life. And that's been, that, that was, that was just on, on its own, apart from the fact that I was really enjoying the work that you had done. It was just really, really neat to see that happening. So, uh, that was really, uh, that was really fun. Um, one, one thing I would want to start with is just to ask you guys where, where what would you guys would say you know, i would i would love to hear you guys talk about places where you departed from what we talked about right i mean i'm sure you know i know there were places where you just you ended up when you when i actually came to doing the outline uh you ended up either sort of adding things that we hadn't talked about or just sort of shifting away from some of the concepts that we had uh that we had uh, uh you know described during the episodes what what are some places that you guys remember where you really felt sort of that need to depart? Um, I know that at the very beginning, uh, this is Brian, by the way. I know that at the very beginning, we we did our best to really try to stick to what you had laid out. Uh, at least at least a kernel, mm-hmm. a nugget in this in the middle of whatever it was that was coming out of our discussions. Um, try to really stick to what you had said, because otherwise, I feel like it, it's no—it's no use, right? It, there's, it's pointless if you guys were in charge of the project, and it was just like, you know, what? I don't really like any of that stuff that they said last week. <laughs> we're just gonna write what? I, I mean, we did a completely unrecognizable thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah there's yeah. no point to that. Um, like you said, uh, when we do these kinds of projects, limitations are often the source of. Uh, some of the best creativity. And mm-hmm. so we tried, at least at the beginning, it's been a while since I've attended uh, any of the, the, the roundtables, but we, we tried to at least stick with the, the core. Um, where we added stuff, and Nick and Marie can back me up on this, where we added stuff was basically where y- we felt like you didn't really delve into it deep enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when we had when we were grasping for details and try to actually like figure out, well, how long is this scene going to be? Is it going to be five minutes? Is it going to be eight minutes? Is it going to be two minutes? Those are the areas where we started adding things. Um, right. In particular, I remember we discussed uh, like sort of the, 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 the blocking, mm-hmm. uh, the staging for yes. things like, um, you know, the timeless halls. That was yes. really difficult. Like trying to figure yes. out where people were going to stand in space Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I seem to recall, and I don't think it changed, that we decided that we were basically going to have mostly people-shaped Ainur, right. and we were just going to stick with that um, and just embellish them with you know whatever uh, special effects we could. But we were—they were, were going to be people. They were going to be instantly recognizable as people, as the actors that were portraying them, regardless. You know, right. however fancy they were with computer graphics. Uh, was up to uh, people who are better with art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree. There are a bunch of really good questions that you guys were raising, um, you know, that you just actually just left as questions in the outline there in those early episodes, which I think were really good questions. Things even that I had, we had never really considered it. It's, you're, you're right. There's so many of those things that come up when you're actually really trying to think through, you know, these episodes on a scene by scene basis. Like a, one, one question, for instance, that you guys asked, which I literally never thought of at any point during the last year in which we've been talking about this, is how did the, how, how did the Valar move around Arda? right? Like Manway can fly. Okay, that's fine. You know, he's like the air dude, right? So he can fly around. Do the rest of them fly? Do they float? Do they walk really fast? Do they, I mean, how do they, you know, how do we, how do we show that? Um, because clearly they can go from one side of Arda to the other quickly, right? They don't even need bunny sleds in order to do that. So like how... (laughs) I figured that would have come up a few times. I mean, Peter Jackson didn't seem to have a problem making people appear in one part of uh, Middle Earth and then in another part in the next scene without explaining it. Uh, So why should we? But but no, I mean, I I agree. It's a really interesting point. You know, to what extent... I mean, it, it really brings up the sort of the larger question, really, of kind of how terrestrial... Uh, if you see what I mean by that, should the Valar be, you know, to what extent are we depicting them as, you know, should we make it present in the audience's mind that these are like semi-divine figures interacting with the world, that just popping in and out of reality in different places, um, or how much should we make it look like they're more kind of native to the world? How how close should be their connection to Arda? Um, you know, how, how many of the normal physical limitations of of you know solid bodies should they have? Um, I, it's a it's it's a really good question, I think. Well, one of the I mean, one of the things that I, I said when when this question came up was like we don't really we don't really have to show this. Per se, because we have a virtually timeless period that we're dealing with here, and right. if Aule wants to walk from you know from Almoran to the very north end of the continent, he could do that, and it, <laughs> it wouldn't matter. Right, as a regular sized man, no less. Right, if, if if it if it takes months, who cares? Right, like why yeah. why would that bother him? Yeah, this was something that I never said out loud, but in my brain, I always kind of figured that it was kind of up to each individual, unless there was like a time limit on something. I sort of figured that the personality of the Ainur that we're dealing with would dictate that. Mm-hmm. Um, if Manway feels like flying, he's going to fly. If Ally feels like you know, I mean, Orame is the kind of guy that is definitely going to ride something or run or Tulkas, same thing, but. I just sort of assumed that it would be more implied, but that if we had to like actually nail down an answer, it would just be depending on the situation and the personality of the character right. that we're writing. Right. But even that, I mean, I mean, on the one hand, as we said, the the time frame is really open, right? So, but but at the same time, thinking, I, well, of course, this is thinking forward to the beginning of season two, but right, Orame is is talking to the elves. Right, and he's like, "Okay, hang on, I'm going to go back to Valinor. I'll be right back." In what three years? Like, I mean, is he, are, are we really? I mean, 
Is that actually, I mean, that's not the impression the book gives, you know, that he like, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, Nahar galloping across Middle Earth for like weeks and months and, and, (laughs) you know, and then getting to the coast and then, you know, and then what, like swimming, getting on a ship to Valinor? I mean, it seems clear that, that there is. He would definitely run over the water. Yeah, he would, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd definitely just keep riding. Yeah, no, you're right. Clearly, Uh, clearly. But. But anyway, yeah, no, there's 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 some, uh, and now I I agree we don't need to spend a whole lot of time actually depicting travel, um, but uh, uh, but I mean it's it just to me it was it was a wonderful example of the kind of question which, when we were just kind of discussing the big picture story, you know, in the episodes, never even occurred to me. I mean, like not even once did that question. Uh, uh, did that question cross my mind? Um, but uh, but but yeah, when you actually start kind of you know embodying uh, these stories in actual you know plot details, <laughs> you know those things suddenly really really start really start coming up. Um, by the way, I think uh, you know like the Valar disembodying themselves and reembodying themselves in different places seems to me perfectly fine. I mean, I think they could travel more or less with the speed of thought if they wanted to um uh you know but but i think that that could be shown in different ways and as you say reflecting the personality of the of the individual uh uh vala in question like with olmo right you know olmo appears in the waters where you know tour is um you know he can he can go and he can speak through waters and things so uh, that reflects his personality right um but it's not like he has to swim to everywhere, you know, and we have to show like Olmo doing the laborious breaststroke to get to wherever he wants to be in Middle Earth. Um, uh, <laughs> so uh, in, in this early stage, though, I really, for me personally, this is another thing I never brought up, but I would say that I would want them to kind of, I would want them to be tourists in their own in their own yeah. piece of work. You know what I mean? Yes. I would, I, unless there's a pressing need. I feel personally like they would spend a lot of time just kind of admiring, especially their own area, particularly right. their own area. But that's that's just my, the vibe that I got from where the the characters that we developed over time, that you developed over time. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, well, they are the characters that we talked about and that you guys are really developing, absolutely. Um, now, Marie points out another another topic, you know, one of the things that were that she immediately mentioned as one of the things that was really needed to, to sort of add on or depart from what we did was the frame, um, that, you know, we had left the frame simply too bare. And boy, Marie, are you absolutely right about that. There were so many times, I mean, how many episodes <laughs> did we get to the end and we're like, oh, yeah, uh, the frame, right. So uh, these other kind of couple things happen or like episodes whole series of you know sessions at a time in which we like forgot to even talk about the frame because we were so focused on what was going on um you know in the first age story so absolutely yeah. I, I was really interested in a lot of the expansion that you guys were doing in the frame and any, any comments you guys want to make about uh sort of the particular directions you were taking the frame in um well i i can tell you that initially uh, when when we first started the, to really kind of get these sessions organized and figure out, kind of like get into the rhythm of it and figure out what we were doing, one of the first things that we would do in every episode is look at, you know, what we wanted to see in the frame, but to figure, kind of figure out where that was going, to figure out what 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 who's learning the lesson here, what did mm-hmm. they try, what are we trying to convey to them, 
Mm-hmm. And that would inform then what's going to take place. So when we did the episode, um, I think it was the the Melkor's arrival episode, and we did the theft of the sword thing. That was because what we had to figure out what is Estelle going through, what is Elrond trying to teach him that is going to bring this up. Right. Right. And it's not as if we had no guidance. We, You guys generally did a good job of pointing out, like, connecting themes to whatever we had discussed with it was going on in the actual story. So we usually had a pretty good, like, direction that we knew we were going to head it. Um, at least early on. I don't know how things went later. But... Um, a lot of jokes about if they don't like what we've come up with, they can always cut our calories. <laughs> then it's their fault anyway. <laughs> it's exactly. It is our fault anyway. I'll pass that buck. <laughs> right. Um, there were there was a lot of joking, probably too much joking at the beginning. I think <laughs> I think things got a little bit tighter towards as as we got better at it. But we spent an awful lot of time. Uh, I, I really wanted to make like a, an animated flash cartoon of all of the jokes that you guys said could never possibly be in the actual show. Right. <laughs> and, and we would spend way too much time like, oh, this would look like that, and it would be really funny. <laughs> mostly me. Mostly my fault. A lot of wasted time. But it was fun. Guilty. <laughs> yeah, cool. Cool. Um... Karita, uh, uh, you wanted to mention something about one of the the departures that you guys were making. Um, yes, I do have something. Uh, it's not so much a specific departure as a like we ended up sitting down and saying, "What does that look like on screen?" And if we felt that it looked silly, sometimes we would leave it in and say, "Well, you know, if they hate it, we can always change it." And this is what they said, so we'll do this. Or we would um, skew things just a little one direction. Like, there was a lot of discussion about where is this discussion taking place? Because there's a whole lot of people standing around talking to each other in this mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. Um, so deciding what the location of those different conversations were wasn't as much a departure as us asking the question, okay, how does the environment influence the tone of the discussion? And um, who's involved in the discussion? Why are they in that place? So, lots of fleshing out, lots of asking why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Episode episode seven in particular was one um, because we knew that we wanted to incorporate um, Hakan's idea of having the Valor discover the it, discover the Fianturi in Valinor, um, which would confirm Manway's decision to go to Valinor. Um, which I know, like, briefly came up in the the original session, but I like I managed to sneak it in in the last like five minutes, and there really wasn't time to to discuss it. Um, so we really fleshed that out, and which was you know in essence a departure from where things were originally going. Um, but in order to do that, we had to kind of shift the order of the episode and have the final decision of when and where to leave take place at the end of the episode. Otherwise, you have this climactic decision at the beginning of the episode, and then there's a bunch of standing around talking about it, which we wanted to avoid. <laughs> for right. obvious reasons. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I loved that, by the way. I really loved how that how that came out. You know, that sense and the idea that 
basically sort of the reveal of the Fanturi is connected with that sense of destiny, you know? Um, yeah. Like, yes, it is fated that the Valar should come here. Um, uh, what a perfect way to introduce, you know, Mandos and Lorien. I thought, I thought that was, that of was, of course, uh, this is the place. Yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was, that was wonderful. I really, uh, that was one of my favorite touches from that, uh, from that episode. Um, yeah. Though actually thinking of in that. I have a question. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, was there a moment when you guys were reading through the script outlines and you sat there and went, oh my God, that's not what we meant, or that looks... What are they doing? Constantly. Dave. I back to the drawing board, I guess. <laughs> Fire me. I, didn't, I got so involved in the story, I forgot to even make notes. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Yep, uh, I think you guys are going to be pulling some all-nighters fixing this. Uh, <laughs> that's all right. It was only $1,000 for my Chinese classes. I don't really need to do those. There, there'll, there'll, there'll be union talk if that happens, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you um, have me. No, I, I mean, I, 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 that was one thing. I mean, it was funny. Uh, 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 Tony Mead had just been commenting a little while earlier that, you know, he's saying it's kind of refreshing that unlike in the movie industry, uh, you know, the writers and producers are on the same page and care about each other's ideas. Um, uh, and, and I agree. Uh, I agree. And it is, I mean, you know, you guys have, clearly have, um, you know, stayed, uh, you know, certainly within the spirit of what we, you know, were talking about. I mean, it's, it, the, the, there was certainly no point in which I was reading them and I'm like, what on earth is going on? This is utterly unrecognizable from, uh, from what we, from what we, uh, uh, you know, were, were thinking of and talking about. Um, uh, so, you know, I definitely didn't have, uh, didn't have that kind of experience. Um, I think, one of the things that I, I think I would want to think through, I, and, 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 and in part this is because, you know, as we talked about before, we didn't flush this out uh, enough, but thinking about the frame uh, and uh, especially, I guess one thing that I was, one, one, one way in which I was thinking this, I guess, was thinking about Gilrine's conflict with Elrond. Um, and I think that when I had pictured that in my head, I, I thought you guys were a little gentle. I actually had envisioned that, that conflict as being much sharper. Uh, your, your Gilrine in the outlines is way less sharp tongued than the one I had in my head. Um, she's much more polite, uh, uh, and a sort of less grumpy and indignant. Um, and, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that my that the one I have in my head is better than the one that you I guys know wrote. that Marie definitely. I recall distinctly, and I I tended to agree with her. Um, and she can back me up on this uh, as she, as quick as she can type. Uh, Marie didn't want um, Gil Ryan to seem unsympathetic, right? Uh, and and I, you know, I was I was definitely. I wanted I wanted Gil Ryan to be as complex a character as the first season could possibly have. Like she seemed to me to be kind of one of the only characters that could really do a lot in terms of just where she was in life mm -hmm. and 
um, and the situation that she was, you know, presented with. But we didn't want her to seem jaded or overly hostile. You know, we, we wanted her to consider the fact that she's a guest. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted her to consider the fact that, you know, she she is part of now the um, the the line of kings as you know as a as a as a wife that you know they had these traditions surrounding the uh, the the fostering I guess of the of the kings and things like that. So we wanted to try, and we wanted her to to be assertive, but we did want to try to. M- make her seem like she was sensitive to all of those things. So maybe we backed off it too much a little bit, her, her assertiveness in the, in the outlines, but the thing that, I, that, that Marie and I agreed with her uh, wanted to, people to feel about Gil Ryan is that she's in a really complicated place in life, doing yes. the best she can, and you know she doesn't let anybody walk all over her, but she's still mindful of all of these you know, important state stately type issues. So that's yeah. that's where we were headed with it. Yeah, Gil Ryan was by far the toughest nut to crack, I think, for me, anyway. Um, because we definitely, we wanted to be able to have that conflict between her and Elrond, but at the same time, there's only so much you can rehash over the same argument without it getting stale and without it getting old. And without people, like, like Brian said, starting to view her as un- unsympathetic, because she's basically putting herself up against Elrond, who you already know to be a wise man. Right. And um, towards, I think the the middle towards the and towards the end of the season, I started to realize that wait a minute, Gilrain has not gotten a single win win in air quotes, <laughs> you right. can't see, right from, right. from the get go, and so I, I started to try to th- try to really think out how to how to give her one. You know, and we we did kind of find a way in episode um, episode uh, episodes nine and ten, and then in I feel in episode twelve we were really able to to really give her a solid you know it, where she gives Elrond some insight that he hadn't he wasn't on yet. Yes. Yeah, that I think was I I I really like that. Uh, see, because I agree with you. One of the difficult things here. Is it's it, it? I could I could really see how it would be hard, or let me say it the other way around. I see how it would be really easy to slip into depicting the Gilrine Elrond tension into a, a essentially a parental mode, right? Where Elrond is the calm and patient parental figure, and she is, you know, uh, impatient and. Uh, more foolhardy and, uh, you know, doesn't see the big picture like Elrond does. And, you know, so yeah, you're right. I mean, if if he's always right and she's always wrong, and not only wrong, but acting, you know, impetuously and impatiently and, um, you know, not having the big picture, th- clearly, that's bad. We we don't want to depict Gilrine that way. Um, this is why, uh, I mean, I... I and then I mentioned this before. I mean, the model that I have for this is in my head is Andreth and Finrod from from the Athrabeth um, in Morgoth's Ring. Um, and there we see Athrabeth. Um, uh, we see we see Andreth um, being rude and impatient, uh, and um, she gets. I mean, I think that like on the whole, 
Finrod wins more, gets more wins than she does in the sense of, you know, there are more times when he just basically is able to say, you don't understand, you know, you're not seeing the big picture here because you don't, you know, you haven't seen as much and you don't know as much as the elves do. Um, so let me, you know, in my superior uh, uh, elvish wisdom explain to you how things really work. That happens a little more than not, I think, in that discussion. But there are lots of times, nevertheless, when despite the fact that she is impatient and even at times rude, um, she does win in the sense of saying things that really make Finrod step back and say, whoa, okay, um, the elves didn't realize that, or we don't think about things that way, or like basically where she's voicing a human perspective and, uh, and, and saying, here's how, you know, uh, here's how, here's how men see this. Um, and it's different from how elves see this. Um, but you should listen to this too. And he does, and he recognizes and he, and he learns stuff and he acknowledges like, yeah, I know we never knew that, you know, this is something we never understood. And would you understand better than we now, Obviously, the difference here is that Gilrine and Elrond are not having the same kind of abstract, like, philosophical-slash-theological discussion that Andreth and Finrod are having, so there's not quite the same opportunities for that. Um, but I think that what one, one other way to balance this, one, one way to make, kind of, to make Gilrine still a little bit sharper and edgier, um, and yet still have, still kind of keep her in bounds... Uh, that is to keep her within the bounds of sympathy and 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 respect. You know that the audience still respects her. Um, is to sort of show that, like, basically her side of things. She might seem to Elrond just like impatient and impetuous and foolhardy, um, as doubtless most men seem to elves that way, right? Um, but for him to recognize, even to acknowledge that 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 perspective that you know the elves are not always right you know and and elrond is not always right i mean i think in some ways um it's uh one of the things with the gilrine el with the, the gilrine elrond question comes down also not only to making sure that she is sympathetic but also controlling his depiction it's really tempting to to depict elrond as like he's the all-knowing all-wise like he doesn't ever make any mistakes i think it'd be cool to i mean and and, and i know you guys did have that moment where she supplies him with something which i which, which i really thought I'd, I'd i'd almost even sort of wonder if we could do more of that um and have him have him <clears throat> making mistakes you know because in a sense the parallel um it's not an it's not an exact parallel, but there is a sense, of course, in which especially having him as storyteller and telling these stories establishes a sort of parallel between Elrond and the Valar themselves. And of course, this is made explicit later on in the season with the where we have the parallel between um, Rivendell and Valinor, right? Okay. Um, especially with Gilrein kind of a, a, a you know the way that Gilrein and Elrond's debate sort of parallels the Manway Melkor debate, right? About where we establish ourselves and everything. And I, I really liked how that worked. Um, but again, the problem is that... Manway Olmo debate. Sorry. Right, exactly. Or perhaps the Manway Olmo debate. Right, right. Um, but anyway, it, it's, it's, it, it seems to me that... Uh, I mean, again, one thing that we're showing throughout, I think... Um, as which is very true to what Tolkien depicted. Of course, the Valar are not always right, you know, and they're not. It's not that, you know, we have. It's not that this is just simply 
you know, the good versus the evil and the good are always, everything the good people are doing is always good and right and everything the evil person is always doing is, is, is bad. I mean, the way that we talked about, uh, you know, during the sessions about, you know, doing the, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and doing the, the, the wrong thing for the right reasons. Um, uh, to basically in some ways implicate Elrond in that too. Like, he's not always right. He doesn't always know. Like, yes, he's very wise, um, but that doesn't mean he always does in fact know better um anyway it's 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 complicated and 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 again the problem here i know is that um i didn't i know that you know during our sessions i didn't really think through their conversations in anything like the kind of detail that you guys were so it's uh, <clears throat> for uh, me the biggest challenge with with trying to go into morgoth's ring um i've read that a couple of times uh and i don't i haven't like i don't remember large chunks of it but for me, the biggest problem with using that for inspiration was mostly the the different relationship between Elrond and Gil'ryan versus Finrod and the woman whose name I can never remember. <laughs> um, that was the biggest yeah. challenge for me. Um, I I liked I liked all of the like the philosophical stuff in that in that dialogue was actually really really great as like a signpost of like. You know the the way that that humans and elves think. It was that was really demonstrative and helpful. But I had a. It was really challenging for me to wrap my head <coughs> around how to repackage that in you know, Ryan's voice and Elrond's voice. Because well, I, you're people. also talking about a mother, ta- you know, yeah. wanting to raise a child, exactly. which is kind of a different exactly. different context. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that was, was actually me a guest personally of the guy who she's criticizing. So. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, we we did discuss that a little bit um, several times when we were when we were working through these things, uh, and I, I think we were also a little bit reluctant to maybe make Gil Ryan too insightful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this would be easier yeah. if they were talking about a different period in history. If we were dealing with actual elvish stories, I feel like this would be easier. But because we're dealing with the Ainur, it's really, I feel like it was it was maybe difficult to suspend disbelief that Gil Ryan would know really anything at all, and not just be kind of either bored or surprised or just kind of amazed. Right. So well, that, I, was, you know, that was the challenge I, I ran into. I agree, you know, and I really liked the way in which the outlines, um, the, the the angle that you guys took with Gil Ryan and her reaction to that in the outlines, I thought was really great. That it seemed to me, if my you know my reading of your outlines suggested that her primary angle was simply impatience, right? Like, okay, okay, I understand, you know, she's she's basically conceding. Fine, like the, this whole education thing. Like, let's teach him about the history of Middle Earth. Like, he needs to understand the context of all this stuff. That's all fine. Why are we spending all this time talking about like essentially sympathy for Melkor, right? Showing how like Melkor's falls. I'll understand why. Like, why are we not just like getting down to uh, evil is really bad. Here's how evil works, and here's how you fight it, right? You know that that's what she wants to focus on, and the, the and the the flashbacks that you guys were doing to. Uh, you know, to her time with Arathorn and Arathorn's death, and like uh, you know, her own suffering and the presence of her suffering. Um, whereas that suffering seems so remote in Rivendell, like nobody else around there suffers, even though, of course, we obviously know that to be untrue. But from her perspective, it would look like, 
you guys have all been living happily here for centuries. So what the heck do you know, right? Well, I've been I've been out on the front lines. I lost my husband, and you know we're all we're we're threatened in this way. Can't we get get, get down to brass tacks of like? You know, let's get to you know Sauron and 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 you know the enemy and the fall of Numenor. Like, sure, that stuff is relevant. Obviously, we're Dunedain, right? But but why on earth are we spending all this time with like how like Melkor wasn't really that bad originally, and and what especially when you know those times that you guys have uh, Estelle kind of coming away confused and saying, you know. So wait, I thought Melkor was evil. What's going on? You know, was he? Is you know, was was this good or bad? Um, you know, and that you know, having her just being kind of impatient with this kind of thing, and and her feeling like this entire education thing is going at this glacial, elvish pace, um, you know, and not not <laughs> yeah. and not getting to the point. I think that one of the the things that I found the most fun about this season's. Uh, was developing Gilrein and seeing that she is a tremendously practical person when it comes yes. down to it. He yeah. is a human. He thinks like a human, and that's not a bad thing. And so you have someone who's thinking of larger sort of philosophical and psychological stories and how do they influence the world we live in today. And then you have someone who's like, okay, well, how is my son going to grow up to be a good king? How is he going to survive? How will he lead well? Right. And both things were very important. So seeing those things stand toe to toe was a delight, really. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was a great asset to us in the outlines. Even though there were a lot of moments where we're like, "Okay, so Gil Ryan, what is she anyway?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, but see, that's exactly it. I mean, that's that's just where I can see the elvish and the human kind of butting heads, and yet both kind of being right. Right, you know that there be like that 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 human urgency of yeah, but okay, how's he going to survive? How is he going to help our people to survive right now? You know, what's uh, how is he being prepared for you know the very real struggle that he has uh, facing him and Elrond being all like, let's you know it, it is important for us to learn from the big picture and understand how all these things work and this is going to be useful for him. Just be patient and I, you know, and, and again, both of them are right. Right, both of them are are, are are perfectly valid perspectives, just very different perspectives. Right. Well, Elrond, Elrond basically sees that any he basically knows that any one individual of the <coughs> line of kings could be the one to unite mankind and to defeat evil and and push it back for another time of restraint. Um, and so he knows he knows that, and he's like every time that he's that he's working with these with the um, the you know the the descendants of Elendil, he has that in his head that this could be the one. Um, but Gilrein's basically coming from the perspective of my people are out living in the wilderness. Right. He's going to have to lead these people and be a good chieftain out there. This isn't going to. This isn't. Uh, this isn't going to help him do that. Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Karina, you I know, I to... think that's a really good point. By the way, that yeah. that that Elrond doesn't know if this is going to be the one. In other words, right. he's had to teach every single one of them as if it was going to be the one. <laughs> um, right. You know. So you're right. I mean, I don't even know that there's a way to convey that. But it's like you know, at this point in the story, Elrond doesn't know that this is the guy that's going to actually do it. Um, I think that's actually a great, really, really great way for them to kind of misunderstand each other. Um, 
I don't. I certainly don't remember this nugget in particular coming out when we were talking about it. But if we're if we're going to go back and revise or try to actually write scripts one day, please, 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 please. Um, <laughs> that that would be the angle where where I think they misunderstand each other is is Elrond is is coming at it from the angle of he could be uh, he could be the one, and she's just right. like. She, that's not on her radar. She needs him to 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 lead, you know, to be right. a chieftain versus versus a king, right? Right. Or or we could even push that in the in the other direction. That, um, yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. That yes. Elrond's not Elrond's not particularly invested in the 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 outcome here, right? Right. Especially I mean, just, like an, he's just another generation to him of especially Dunedin if we were to bring in a an element of the that kind of Dunedin foresight that keeps coming up, right? You know, like with, uh, if we have uh, Gilrein, because um, th- that's a, that's one kind of advantage, in a sense, that we can give her over Elrond, again, thinking in terms, you know, as we were saying about winning and losing. Um, she could have foresight. She could have foreknowledge of the kind that, you know, we see striking the Dunedain at various points, right? Like happened with Gilrein's parents um, uh, in Appendix A. She could have a conviction you know, have a, a conviction brought to her by, you know, by foresight that her son is the one. Um, and Elrond can be not skeptical, but reserved, right? Like, well, you know, he may be the one. Um, and, he, and, he, and he thinks... <laughs> would or, you, you know, depict that on screen, or would you rather have it already happen when we open on, on the first episode? Uh, well, I, I, I think that it could come up, uh, it, that, that, it, that it could come up on screen. Um, I'm not sure which episode would be best to do that in, but uh, but I would yeah, certainly I mean, rather. Sorry, go ahead. I would certainly rather see it rather than yeah, have yeah. it be yeah, you know, backstory. Right. Um, I mean, it, it's. I mean, I I would even go so far as to say that that kind of that kind of foresight is at least hinted at. Um, you know, in her saying, like I gave hope to the Dunedain, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I think that we could, you know, and again, it could be another thing that where she's willing to be patient with Elrond's instruction because, she, you know, she does recognize, like, look, if he is, you know, if he is going to lead our people and if he is the one who, who, who is going to restore the Dunedain, um, whatever that looks like, not necessarily being like, and when he's king in Gondor, right, she doesn't have to be that specific in her for in her foresight, but just to know that, like, he, his, you know, he has a, you know, a great doom is upon him, you know, that she just knows that he is, um, you know, that he's really important for the, so she's going to recognize, like, okay, it's really good for him to get this instruction by, by Elrond. Um, but at the same time, she's like, yeah, but come on, you know, let's, let's get to the point and let's not, let's, you know, the <laughs> last thing I want to, <laughs> yeah, so let's not do it at elf speed. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 most of all, let's not try to inculcate in him this like namby pamby, elvish like let's wait and see what happens kind of point of view. <laughs> like let's sit here and do nothing while the world unfolds around us, and uh, and you know that's going to be her frustration. And again, it's a valid frustration. And you can even, I think, you can even go so far as to say, I mean, I think it's something that we can bring in, not just here, but you know, moving forward. Um, it's it's an elvish fault, you know. I mean, people sometimes ask, you know, when when talking about like, why does the White Council do nothing for so long? 
right? Like why, when you look at the outlines, you know, when you when you look at the tale of years, and you're like, okay, so they were suspicious that this was Sauron, and then they waited for like 150 years before they did anything. <laughs> because, why? Because Gimlin you know? wasn't there to poke Elrond in the <laughs> well, side. Well, exactly. Because <laughs> they're elves, right? And they're like, let us wait and see what the years shall bring, you know. And Elrond so precipitates the destruction of Gold Dol Guldor. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Get off your elvish butts and do something, would you please? Yeah, yeah. Um. Something that I think would be really great to bring in at some point, and this wouldn't even have to be written into a specific episode, is getting a shot of Gil Ryan's face reacting to some tralalalali elves. Because... Oh, please, yes. So I was a big proponent. Episode 11, that would be... It would just be great because she's just this very, you know, business-like. She she has an idea in her head of, okay, we need to get stuff done. And then there's these elves sort of cohorting in the background. I love the Tralalali elves. But I, I was a big might... proponent. I wanted Tralalali so much. I <laughs> anytime we, anytime we had any chance, excuse to sneak it in. Anytime. Oh, I think it's perfect, and I yeah. totally agree with that idea of having Gil Ryan just be really impatient with them. You know, yeah. and I, and I, yeah, I can keep sneaking them in. These, yeah. these things are all are all kind of revolving around episode six, which episode five and six take the frame takes place in the same space and time for episodes five and six. Uh, which, by the way, speaking of episodes five and six, came comes to like the biggest departure in my mind, and the one that probably has has stuck in my craw the most because I missed the sets episode um, when we were because we actually we actually did the construction of the the we did the discussion of the, the construction of the lamps probably the week before you guys did sets and I wasn't there and then I started seeing things coming up on the forum saying oh well the the hosts want to do smaller lamps that are perched right near Almorin and I went, wait, what? But what? what? Nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I had an, a minor aneurysm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys got a chance to, to see the long explanation that I, I posted up on the forums to in in defense of larger lamps, but <laughs> I had Don't to... worry, Nick, you're not alone on that one. I was very, very sad with my huge epic pillars coming down and smashing Almorind into the sea. Yeah, I was sad. And so began the Save the Lamps campaign. It probably wasn't as sad. Oh, okay. Well, that is that is actually more epic to do it that way. I, you know? Well, I remember Corey very specifically saying he didn't want it to be so epic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it can be. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not totally committed to that. I mean, I would be. No, I don't would be, backtrack. You're you're the executive producer. Stamp no, your foot. I'd be. I'm willing to be convinced on the on the the, the bigger lamps. Um, I would just want to. I uh, the the one of the main things that I was focused on there um, was still my attachment to the idea again, which I was just raising before. It's one of the places where we want to show, I think, we want to show the Valar messing up. Um, you know, that, like, really it's one of their first mistakes was essentially to to give in to this sort of temptation to kind of hoard the lights. I mean, in a sense, it's like a mini version of what Melkor has done, right? I mean, the, the, essential, the essential problem, Melkor's essential problem, 
is turning to himself, right? Is focusing on himself <laughs> rather than focusing on a Luvatar and focusing outwards. Um, right. And basically, the Valar fall into a, a sort of a smaller version of that by focusing on, instead of spreading like our blessings evenly around and focusing on all of, of, of Arda, we're going to really like choose our favorite place and we're going to specially adorn our, our favorite place and we're going to take, right. we're going to, we're going to bring the light around here and right. we're going to leave a bunch of the rest of Middle Earth in darkness as a consequence. Um, and that right. image of, that sort of visual image of like the brightly lit and beautiful Almarin region mm -hmm. and then the dim and even dark other reaches, not the entire rest of, 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 of Arda, but you know, much of the rest of, of Arda being left in shadow right. as a consequence. Um, again, it's like... If it's, I may rebut? Yeah. Okay, yes, go ahead. Uh, the only, well, not the only, but the, the, the most uh, striking issue that I have with that particular interpretation is that I feel it's a little too Valinorian. Um, mm -hmm. I would want there to be a a really noticeable transition from what they do in Almerind to Almerind writ small in Valinor. That's the only real like. Well, I, very... I don't. This is. I, I I understand. I, I I understand the 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 goal here, and and I feel like there's there's definitely a compromise there, um, because we, when we were like working out the mechanics of 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 how to do this, it, you know, we wind up saying okay. You know, if to not go crazy, you could have the lamps like a few, like a, 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 a like a thousand miles. I forget what the exact math. Marie could probably correct me. You know, like a thousand miles from Almarin, and they still wouldn't light all of Arda, and the light would still be focused on Almarin. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the the idea that these lamps, that I mean, quite honestly, if all of us got together, we could build ourselves. Humanly, <laughs> you know, be, being this a critical of of the, you know, it really diminishes what 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 Aule is doing. Not to mention, I the the idea that these godlike beings could have all their stuff wiped out by what's essentially, you know, light bulbs on the top of the Eiffel Tower. You're overselling it. <laughs> Well, that's... I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Right. You're... Right. No, I'm... I hear yeah. you. That's a good... It, it is a good point. We do need to make sure that these... And also we need to make sure there's a, a clear... You know... I just... I feel like there needs to be a big contrast between yeah. what they were doing in Almorand and then shrinking it down. Because that was the whole point... Uh, well, and the, there the, is another thing there, guys, which is for the lamps to be a big enough deal that the destruction of them would create the Balrogs. I mean, that's a huge thing yeah. for those angelic beings to become um, demons as a result of their, you know, right. their, their, you know, so, you know, if they just, like, flick a lamp over with, with one finger, that's, I mean, it needs to be pretty major. So the lamps themselves probably need to be pretty major for that to be happening. Because, I mean, I'm picturing this, this thing of them emerging from the smoke and ruin as these corrupted demon figures now. You know what I mean? And so you kind of have to have the lamps be somewhat aligned with that happening. Right. Yes, no? Yeah. So that was my rebuttal. And 
you can, as the executive producer, you can do what you okay. do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, your point about the Eiffel Tower with a beacon on top is uh, is certainly that we don't want it to look like that or to be on that scale. And I would add, we we you're right. You're absolutely right that we want to make sure that there's a there's a clear proportional difference to anything that we're going to see anybody making later on. So take like you know the 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 the. The tower of the of the of the, you know the, of the Mindon in in uh, Tyrion, right? I mean, we've got the the lamp. We're gonna have like a you know a beam of light on top of the tower in Tyrion. It's gotta look much smaller, right? Like only the dimmest right. memory of the of the lamps, yeah. and not like something that could potentially rival them. Right. So okay, yeah, yeah, I'm willing to agree with that. It doesn't have to be small lamps. You can make the lamps big if you want to make the lamps big. <laughs> I will, I will, I will concede. Uh, though Tony made the made fun of me and saying like this again is like the uh, the, uh, the 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 front office guy is not supposed to be like okay, whatever you guys say. I'm sure you're right and I'm wrong. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, right. Marie says uh, mountains with giant rock pillars and bright lights in the sky. Yep. Yeah. No. I, well, that's that it, that's that it Yeah. That's one of the reasons why we came up with the idea of of, of uh, Myron coming up with the idea to use metal in the construction of the of the pillars themselves, because they were able to build them taller as a result. Because you know, at first, and this was Brian's idea that you know, Ali's like, well, they should be like a like, like a mountain, right? Because you know, that's how you support things. And then Myron says, well, you know, well, what if we what if we use metal to make it taller? And, and there's a whole discussion on that. So, yeah. Hey, Nick. I remember Marie in particular was very insistent on rebar, steel rebar. Yeah, rebar, yeah. Her, exactly. Her contribution. <laughs> we, we didn't burst into tears. Good job. You're uh, hashtag one. Ah. <laughs> Posting now. And people say... Now you can change it to hashtag, hashtag we saved the lamps. <laughs> <laughs> and people say social media doesn't contribute to anything. <laughs> All right. Well, I have a bigger issue that I that I wanted to raise uh, because, and this is uh, this is to, this is to me the biggest question. Uh, you know, sort of stepping back and looking at the entire season, um, it seems that the biggest challenge, and you guys were pointing to this in the outlines as well, the first three episodes are really hard. And in particular, the first three episodes are really hard to make interesting. I mean, there is a real danger of episodes one through three being exceptionally boring. All dialogue. Yes, all dialogue and no... Like, basically, you know, I remember having this experience when we were talking about it. You know, we kind of hit our stride when, you know, Melkorsha basically around episode four. And it's very noticeable reading through the outlines. Episode four, things really start to click. You know, Melkor shows up and we get the... And it's awesome. As soon as Melkor shows up in Arda, um, the story really, really takes off. And I remember having that experience, too. Now, in part, I was kind of... Uh, I was kind of, at the time, thinking like, well, you know, we're kind of, you know, kind of getting our feet under us here. And it's uh, certainly an experience I've had many times before that, like, once I really get in the flow of things, you know, things kind of start coming together a little bit better. But I was just going back and reading the outlines. I was like, actually, no, I think that there may be a fundamental flaw in the way that we were envisioning the first few episodes of the season one, um, because there's there is not enough 
there's not enough dramatic tension. There's not enough movement. Um, to it's it's really hard, as you say, mostly dialogue. Um, so I solution you know, come sorry, up go, very quickly. I remember yes. we. I remember we really tried to figure out some way to get them in the first episode to like not work well together without actually getting at each other's throats. Right. And mostly right. we just kept introducing solutions very quickly to their problems. Right. So. Right. Yeah, it is. It's very challenging, I think. Um, and uh, and I'm not quite sure how to solve it. Um, and I'm wondering. So here's here's. I, do we consider? Should we consider some kind of actual radical reorganization? Um, some, you know, just just fundamentally changing the approach. So just so okay to like recap to make sure everybody remembers what we're talking about and that we're on the same page. Episode one was basically the Ina Lindaway. So again, ignore ignoring the frame for a second, as I was so wont to do, um, and just focused on the focusing on the third age content or the first age content rather of the of the first three episodes. We have the Ina Lindaway. Um, you know the song and the discord, and the vision and and the the create you know the AA, the creation of 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 Arda uh, in episode one. Episode two was the Valar sort of coming together and working together, uh, you know, sort of meeting each other in Middle Earth, introducing the different Valar and and the boy again. See, you, see, you can already see how this is a problem, right? I mean, we did kind of say when we were talking about these episodes back at the beginning, one of the main goals of this episode is to introduce our cast of characters. Okay, you could do that, but that's freaking boring. I mean, you can't just do that. You can't just be like, hi, I'm Yavanna, and I, you know, make animals in trees. Like, that's boring. So, but anyway, so we have, we're introducing our cast of characters, and we're bringing everybody together, and they're deciding to work together, and they establish Almoran in episode two. And then episode three is that flashback episode where we have Melkor, where we introduce Melkor, and the beginning of his trajectory and we show Melkor in the void and looking for the uh, imperishable flame and the centerpiece there is the the sort of the conversation between him and Varda in which Varda rejects him um and all three of these episodes were kind of a were, were kind of a problem and again I was I was I was just reminded of how challenging this is and especially of course we have the difficulty that these are the first episodes right I mean how can we make these episodes in such a way that anyone is going to want to carry on watching the next 20 seasons uh, if we can't make the first couple episodes engaging and interesting right I've got a um, brilliant idea actually you found out what uh, I've got a brilliant idea okay we excellent. could <laughs> The first oh, few episodes that are boring, make them into a giant musical number. Oh, dear. Separate production. <laughs> yes. This is, uh, it would be so engaging. Is... It would uh, bring in new audience members. It would not be anything like the rest of it, which might be a fundamental flaw. Which is exactly what but... you want in a pilot, right? You always want yeah. the pilot exactly. to be in a completely different style than the entire rest of the show is going to be in. Absolutely. <laughs> No, we have well, Hamilton giving us a leg up. People are interested in musicals. <laughs> well, this, this is this is why I this is why I initially started out um, trying to to get us to do the the cold open for episode one, starting with the 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 death of uh, of Arathorn, mm -hmm. was because I knew that episode one was going to be a problem. Um, however. I think that if we if we do a little bit more with the um, I, I, again it, the, if the if we show some conflict already starting in the timeless halls there, 
and we have enough conflict in the frame, I think we might be able to to make some of this work out where it doesn't look where we don't put them to sleep for an hour. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. I like the idea. One thing that I was even thinking of um, along similar lines, I was wondering if we might actually want to make an allusion to the battle at the end of season one in the beginning that is conceptually we start with conflict and the the reality of conflict because essentially the core of the of the frame idea for episode one that is like why we start getting the frame why Elrond is telling these stories in the first place is he's explaining in his patient big picture elvish way um, let's talk about where conflict comes from, right? And why things are the way they are, and how, and you know, what are the origins and roots of all of these troubles that we are having, right? So again, Gil Ryan is like, okay, we have an enemy, we're our people are in trouble. How can we face this? And Elrond is all like, let's think about the origins of evil and where conflict comes from in this world, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, so, okay, so, so, but, but, but again, this is what. The Ainuendoe essentially shows this, right? It shows how, you know, choice and evil are connected and how we move from, uh, you know, how um, how evil enters the world and how conflict comes about. So what if we actually kind of incorporate that? Um, the death of Arathorn is a good way, I think, to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm more and more in favor of that now, Um I was I was skeptical about actually introducing an action sequence with the death of Arathorn in the frame. Um, it struck me as a little bit too like risking being a little bit too Peter Jackson, like dragging in an action sequence when it's not needed. But actually, I'm kind of after reading the outlines and thinking through this again. I'm like, actually, it kind of is needed. Really, I actually think we do need something. Not that we need an action sequence specifically, but we do need more. We we need that the kind of the sense of conflict and urgency. One of the other risks, of course, of the Rivendell setting of the frame is that it's very peaceful, right? It's not urgent. Like, there's no threat. Everybody's happy and safe and content. Um, so even if uh, maybe Gilrine is disgruntled and impatient and frustrated with some things, but that's not exactly a towering conflict uh, to, 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 to run our plot around, right? So if we begin with this kind of reminder of like outside in the rest of Middle Earth, here's what's going on, right? You know, here's the kind of thing that's going. You know, so basically, to to be signaling clearly, Rivendell within the frame is this oasis of peace within a world of chaos and conflict and death. Um, and Arathorn's memory and Gilrine's grief that also sort of makes Gilrine's grief and Gilrine's own sense of urgency more sympathetic throughout the whole season, right? If we start with that and we know, you know, so we begin with the, uh, you know, the grief and the urgency for Gilrine. I think that that puts her character in a really good position from the beginning. But I think that, that we can then connect it through uh, to the big picture. I love the concept that you guys had of starting the frame in the first episode with, um, with Estelle you know, reenacting battles in the corridors of Rivendell with a wooden sword. I think that's awesome. Um, 
And wouldn't it be great to transition with that, right? If we started with Arathorn and then we moved to Estelle, um, what if the battle that he was reenacting or the sort of the fight, like the if you know, if we have him like seeing, you know, looking at one of the tapestries and getting really excited about the battle that it depicts, what if that battle is a scene from episode thirteen? Um, and he's thinking this is the great story, right? You know, this is the, mm-hmm. he uh, he understands this is like, you know, one of the big like mythological moments, right? He understands this as as like an ancient. Uh, an ancient story of 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 the war of the gods, and he thinks this is awesome, right? And so Elrond wants to contextualize this and sort of talk about where this where this uh, where this comes where where this comes from. Um, I think it's okay, and I think we said this at the time. I think it's okay if Episode One is a lot of frame, time wise. Um, yeah, I don't think that. the actual I know yeah. Lidale, need take up very much time at all necessarily, and I think it might actually be really good. To have a lot of time in the frame, um, uh, but um, but anyway, I'm you know I, I'm even wondering if like uh, uh, Estelle's contemplation of the tapestry could even trigger a kind of flash forward to you know sort of scattered scenes from the battle that we'll get to at the end, and we don't need to explain the context or the um, or the uh, um, uh, or the uh, um, what if it's just know. audio? What if, like, we're and we actually hear audio from, from that battle. battle, right? Right, rather than like actually seeing it, because otherwise it's, it, it it may be a little weird to go from this setting where in where we're in Rivendell and the most disturbing thing is a ten year old boy, to um to the the battlefield at the you know the the war to begin all wars. But rather to hear audio, like hear the shouts and hear like. Because I would definitely love to cut from like you know Aragorn swinging his little stick to you know flashes of the different um, the different Ainur or Valar, I guess, um, yes. on the on the tapestry as we're hearing. Recognize, like I would want people to remember. Oh, I remember that line of dialogue, or I remember that scream. Or whatever yes. from the first episode. Yeah. That's yes. stuff. That'd be great yeah. to give little, little like uh, you know, heroic glimpses of like Tolkas and Orame and uh, Aonwe in the battle. Um, yeah, and 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 flashing back and forth, having the I you know I, I like the idea of that audio behind it all, and of course, running behind all of it is the Melkor's Discord theme, right? Of course, musically, of course. Uh, in the background behind all of that, yeah. Um, and and this leads, of course, to like you can see right away how this sets up the Gil Ryan Elrond thing, right? Because on the one hand, she approves, right? Um, she wants him to, be, you know, the, the, uh, to be to think, you know, to 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 she wants him to be a hero. She wants him to recognize like, he he's going to have to be a fighter, and she wants him to fight. Um, and and. But Elrond is looking at this thinking he's missing the point. He's not understanding. Like if he thinks the battle is the heroic thing, is the great thing, is the you know, this is uh this is the awesome part. Um, like basically I would I, I would think in w- one way of saying it would be Elrond's entire lesson plan 
behind all of season one as he's telling all these stories is basically to bring Estelle to the point of understanding Manway's tears yep. while the battle is fighting or when they decide to fight rather and than we, just we really, glorying in the battle. Right. And um, we really bit into that in episode 13 too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that was the one you were missing or if you were missing episode 12 but the, in that one um, we we actually started out with um, Estelle getting really excited to find out that they're actually going to talk about that battle and and Elrond kind of going, oh, God, nothing. The, the whole past year of my life, just nothing. Nothing happened. <laughs> right back to where we started. But at the end of it, um, when Elrond tries to point out that you know that, and so you can see now, right? That you know that the war wasn't a good thing. That there was, you know, that there was all this cost associated with it. And then Estelle points, you know, says, "Yeah, well, yes, you're right. But also, if there hadn't been the battle, then Tulkas couldn't have been brave, and Manway couldn't have been a great leader, and all of these beautiful things wouldn't have happened." Right, and, and and Arda wouldn't, and the ch- and the children would have could have been would have been destroyed, right? I mean, to yeah, well, to, yeah. Mean, but if they had if if they had somehow found a, a way to you know to to deal with it, then all of these the, then there were been members of the Valor who would never have really been themselves. Right, exactly. So we 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 get back to a it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Uh, yes. Line of thinking, yeah, yeah. Which Which we, I love I love that, that by the way. Yeah, yeah. I love the inclusion of that line. One of the things that I really, yeah, one of the things that I really loved about the frame, and I don't know that it necessarily is overt, but one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading the various uh, vignettes for the frame is we're seeing, we're seeing the foundation get laid, you know, like for example, one of my responses to Gil Ryan, if you know, if she asked me, you know, why are we talking so much about Melkor and why are we, you know, portraying him. Or, or actually, I guess even Elrond at the end of one of the episodes says something like his to, El, to Estelle's question about Melkor. Well, you know, e- evil things don't start out evil, or you know, even even in the beginning they're not evil. Is how he becomes Aragorn. You know, is this is a foundation for how he is as Elisar. And um, I, I'm, I was trying to think if there are some parallels, like in the Lord of the Rings itself, where we see Aragorn behaving in a way that's commensurate with this kind of teaching. And I can't think of anything yet, but I, I'm sure there's something there somewhere. Well, um, but I think that's really cool. Well, something that, that Professor Olson has brought up uh, quite a number of times, and, um, and we directly addressed it in, in um, several of the discussions in, uh, on the videos, um, is the decision to go after Mary and Pippin versus the decision to go after Frodo and Sam. You know, like this, there are certain moments, and you can start to see this person becoming this person, um, especially in episode eight. Episode eight, when Manway goes to meet with Melkor, which is clearly not the expedient thing to do. Um, but you know, it's it's still the right thing to do at the end of the day, and that's the episode where we use the line: "It, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better." when Aloran Gandalf comes back, and which is, again, going to inform Gandalf's character in The Lord of the Rings as well, when he comes back and he kind of has this debriefing with, er- with Ermo and Lorien, and Lorien tells him, tell, gives him this nugget, and Lorien's like, what, what does that mean? And, and uh, Ermo says, I don't know. 
I'll have to think about that. <laughs> I think that uh, one of the benefits of opening up with something that is a little more human and a little bit closer to our perspective is that our audience is human, and to see why this story matters, such a big story that has a lot of abstract things to it, is important. Of why, why does a story that reads um, rather difficultly for many people resonate with every kid who's, you know, swung a stick around pretending it was a sword? Why is there evil? All of these questions that people talk about um, and wrestle with their whole lives can be brought home by an opening that is a little bit closer to home for us humans, mm-hmm. since we're not elves. Mm-hmm. Right. At least I'm not. <laughs> But see, then when we actually get to the story of the Aino Windaway within that frame, which again, the frame can even be more, you know, well over 50% of the episode, then what I'm thinking, Karita, is a big musical number. But I actually do think that we could... Um, the thing with the Aino Windaway is one of the questions, and it's a very relevant question that you guys raised was like, uh, how do we depict relative chronology within the timeless halls, right? Like, how do we depict, like, okay, so this uh, event happens at, like, we, you know, when, we're cut, when we're cutting back to Varda and Melkor at the Void, um, how do we show that this has happened, this happens before the music happened, right? You know, how do, how do we depict relative time frames within the timeless halls? Um, I'm not sure we need to. I think we don't need... The Ainur Lindelay, the actual music of the Ainur, I think it would be not only okay, I think it would be good for us to depict that radically differently. That is, for it, for there to be a sense of discontinuity between the music itself and the rest of the narrative, because the rest of it is fundamentally the narrative of Arda, the only exception to that being the flashback to Varda and Melkor, but... Um, with that one exception, the rest of it is all the story of Arda, which I think could and should feel differently. Um, I mean, I think I if, if if <laughs> Elrond starts his story, right, and he can give us a few sentences of voiceover um, to, you know, indicate the, um, you know, to sort of set the scene and to explain what's going on. But if if the scene then shifts not to, you know, generally humanoid Valar in a place which is somehow the Timeless Halls, if instead um, we get, um, you know, a, a, a shift to a much more sort of conceptualized, you know, basically we tell the story, the, the fundamental story of the music happens through music, even without words. Um, and we can interject voiceover from Elrond at certain points if we feel like a thing needs clear explanation. Um, but even then, <laughs> visually, to have you know shapes and colors and 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 things, I think we could be kind of you know concept art with that a little bit at that point. I think it would be a great part to have our artists, our very gifted artists, come in and just go crazy. Um, yeah. with ideas that are more abstract, you can portray them in ways that are more abstract, but aren't completely alien. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, is I, mean, a I will point out that this is a huge reversal <laughs> of what you guys said. But what we did was also a huge reversal of what was originally discussed also. Uh, so it's, 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 it? it's I thought it was more fair of a Because our big thing was that we wanted to avoid voiceover. That's the, that is the key that well, I remember. Well, there wouldn't be much for I mean, it wouldn't just be a continuously voiced over thing. And I do think yeah. that we could shift after the music. Like when... Uh, when Iluvatar, um, one one interesting question uh, that uh, you guys kind of tossed off in that episode is like the business about Iluvatar raising his hand, right? And and well, so so he has to have a hand, obviously, in order for to, him to, he has to be able to smile to raise it. Yes, and he has to be able to smile. So, um, I think it would be interesting to. Have that that be the moment, like basically have the mo- like the final chord of the music um, that comes in and brings the music to its end <clears throat> can be uh, the music itself doesn't have to last that long, you know, couple minutes of like music and concept art which tells the story, and it's okay if people don't fully understand what happened. That's actually fine. That's actually it should be that way, really. Um, and then we have uh, we have Melkor and Iluvatar. When we get that the sort of the confrontation afterwards and Iluvatar's dialogue, we can shift to a more visual medium. We can bring in the act, the Melkor actor at that point, um, and we can start. To, you know, so the the end of that I think can be a bit more realistic. But yeah, I mean, I am reversing myself. The more I think about it, the more I think we can best capture the significance of the music if we have it be more conceptual. What I was always resistant to was having that dominate. I mean, we, we, we can't have episode one just be like uh, basically sending the signal, this uh, this TV show is essentially, you know, uh, an episodic version of Disney's Fantasia. Like, we, 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 we don't want to convey... <laughs> Psychedelic hallucinations. Exactly. We don't want to convey that signal to our audience, <laughs> but if the frame is dominating it, and that 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 sort of conceptual music segment is only a few minutes long, you know, in the second half of the episode, I don't think we're in any we're in any danger. Yeah, exactly, Marie. It's not like the heffalumps and woozles. Um, <laughs> uh, Could be, Could be. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. It, moment. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I I'm. I, I am more happy with the concept of doing doing the music of the Einar itself a little bit more abstractly the more I think about it. And as if we contextualize it in that way, if we set it in that way, and then have, you know, we can we can have them kind of talking about it afterwards. Um, I kind of want to say something snarky about you coming to your senses, but that was true, <laughs> so I won't. <laughs> But, uh, but you're smarter than that, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if we did, it, you know, if we did include the um, the bit about the about the death of Arthur, that would certainly give us enough material in this episode. Which episodes one and two was really the ones, the two episodes in particular that we really had to stretch to yes. to oh, get yeah. enough material well, into them. At least make- half of the scenes in the first episode, especially the scenes that occur before the music, mm-hmm. were us trying to put something on yes. paper. 
because we did not have enough of anything to make an episode. Certainly not a two-hour episode. Right. And I don't even think it needs to be necessarily a two-hour episode. Um, The more I've thought about this, the less desirable that seemed because it is... uh, I wanted to make Trish happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I mean, like the scene with the scene with Arathorn, Like, if we if we do start with Arathorn's death scene, I mean, that can last a while. I mean, that we can we can even build that up. You know, it's not even like we have to start in mid battle or like you know, it's not like we have to begin with Arathorn lying there with an arrow sticking out of his head. You know, that scene has to be from Gil Ryan's perspective. So I would actually say that battle crashes into whatever scene Gil Ryan is in the middle of. Right. Because I right. can't see that being anything less than only her perspective and nobody else's. Absolutely. And uh and, and I think we need build up before that. I mean I think we need, you know, flashbacks to, you know, her last you know her last meeting with Ar- with Arathorn and and you know I don't even I don't think we have to go back that far but I would be perfectly willing to have there be like a like essentially a multi scene sequence at the beginning with Gilrain and Arathorn ultimately leading to his death um, and we can save some of it I know you guys were doing some flashbacks of like her showing up at Rivendell with infant uh, 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 you know or, you know with with uh, with little Estelle. Um, we can save some of those images for later on. We don't have to do all of the flashbacks in the first episode, but um, you know, maybe we end with uh, you know Gilrein grieving over Arathorn's body, um, and then cut from there to 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 young Estelle, um, or the credits, the opening credits, the opening credits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, the, the, like I said, I mean, I'd be happy to go on with that for a while to really kind of establish this. Because now the other thing we have to remember is we can't assume everybody knows who Estelle is, you know, right? I mean, part of the structure of this was not giving that away right away. So people understanding where Estelle comes from, why this kid is being raised in Rivendell in the first place, so understanding like his family tragedy, his significance, his family tragedy, the importance of protecting him, um, and you know, and and possibly even his mother's. Uh, you know, some glimmer of his mother's premonition about how important he is. Um, those can all come in um, in that opening sequence, which helps, I think, is going to help to bring, first of all, to, re- I mean, that kind of an opening obviously positions our sympathies squarely behind Gilrein from the very beginning of the show, right? Um, so I think that that greatly reduces the risk of her just looking like a throwaway loser compared to Elrond all the way through. I, I think it gives us a lot more space to make her a little bit snarkier and snippier, certainly. Because uh-huh. we, uh-huh. we have a much... Our understanding of why she's that way is very, very well established and grounded in yes. something that's clearly bad. Exactly. And very understandable and very sympathetic. Um, so that right. even when she is... Because there are times when she's just going to be flat wrong. Like, Andreth is flat wrong at times. Yeah. Um, in, in her impatience and the way she speaks against the elves. Um, but it's understandable, right? Um, and uh, and, and so, so that we, we, can, we can even sort of, in that sense, sympathize with her even when she's obviously wrong and, and shown to be wrong. Uh, Karina, you should, you should say aloud what you were just typing there. Oh, okay. Um, I think it would be really great if we made a connection on screen at some point um, 
to get it in the audience's head that Gilrine and Elrond are both people who have lost their beloved, that have both suffered something that is tragic, and they have this common ground, even if they never talk about it, even if they never have a conversation, some kind of shot that sort of shows us that they're coming from different places, but they have something that's devastating in common. It would, it would kind of give us a more complicated relationship when they're disagreeing. Right. Yes, I agree. And that maybe doesn't come up right away. You know, maybe we save that to kind of reveal later on down the line um, that. Uh, uh, I feel like that's the set piece around which they finally come to a real clear understanding of where the other is coming from. Right. Um, right. Are yeah. finally on the same page, so that would have to be like episode twelve, episode or the last episode. Right. Whenever, whenever, whenever the point is that her impatience with his sitting around and not doing anything, right? When she accuses him of like, you know, you elves just are patient, are willing to sit around. Like, what do you know about suffering in the world? Right? You're totally cut off from like suffering in the world. You're living in your little elvish bubble here and here in this valley. What have you ever lost? Exactly. Exactly right, and then he so he can, they can have a conversation where basically we emerge from that saying, okay, there is still, there is sympathy there, there is connection there between them, but um, they are both children of Iluvatar, and they're yes. they're human and elf, but they have the trappings of of loss and sorrow that are accompanied by that fact. Right, um, right. Exactly. It would be good to remind the audience. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, I think that's great. Maria's suggesting uh, uh, it could come up for the first time in episode five or six when we get the flashback and she's not happy with the Tolka's Nessa story. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, I think that that's an interesting idea, kind of bringing that through. Um, uh, having that be a moment where, again, they're, they're t it, it doesn't change the fact that their two perspectives are different, right? It doesn't change the fact that they still look at things in a completely different way. I mean, the, the, their expressions of their grief and their mourning, their reactions to their losses are very different, right? Um, but nevertheless, they still share, you know, they still share something deep and they, they you know, she rec you know, she can come to, rec she needs to come to recognize that um, Elrond is not just oblivious. Because that, that seems uh, that that's like how she would how she would think. Well, of and that the 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 long years that he spent apart from his beloved haven't dulled, you know, right. his sense of loss in the way that she imagines, because right. she just doesn't understand what living that long would be like. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay. Um, what about episode We're two? <laughs> what about episode two? How do we jazz up episode two? Episode three, I think, is closest. It's the least problematic. Oh, by the way, I, let me actually jump ahead to episode three. Um, I really loved the... the uh, I don't know whose comment it was, but whoever commented in the outline um, that there was like a risk of having episode three be kind of like Melkor's personal video blog. Um, <laughs> I actually loved that. 
I love that. I'm like, yeah, no, actually, that's totally what we should do. That's absolutely how we should describe this. Uh, we should, we should, I mean, I, I think it would be really cool if the depiction of Melkor's, you know, sort of his first temptations in fall, if the, you know, like the, the, the cinematography is just is is notably different right like the the orientation of the camera uh always towards him and sort of shifting from his point of view to like close up of his face like you know that 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 it really sort of it would be really cool if we could echo in the cinematography of that episode the self-absorption like the increasing self-absorption of melkor um that would be awesome that would be really that would be really funny Marie says that was Alex Long's uh, uh, comment. I, I think that's really that's really that's really funny. I think I I, I I I was just I was really kind of entranced by that, especially since if we change if we make those changes to episode one, if we basically don't really depict much or even possibly any action other than sort of like the final conversation uh, and discussion and and the 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 creation of Arda within the timeless halls. Um, if we if we cut out all of that pre music stuff in the timeless halls, um, then... I love the, the log idea, and uh, I think that there is a way to to get that across with the cinematography that's not too comical. Because yes. the danger with people who are tremendously self absorbed is that they yeah. are hilarious, and the more right. self absorbed they are, the funnier they are. But I think it would be great. I think it would be just funny enough, but still get across a strong idea of Melkor's own perspective of himself as the misunderstood hero. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, that would be, that would be really, and, and then we shift from that because in episode four, when he's there interacting with the other Valar, we, you know, the, the cinematography kind of pulls back because this is now, you know, looking sort of from the objective frame, but, but, it, but it would, it would be almost like a perspective, a, a, a point of view, not, not just a point of view shift, but like shifting from first person to third person, um, you know, within a written narrative, basically, um, from episode four onwards, we're just telling it in the third person. Um, but to, to give that kind of a first person feel to episode three, uh, would be really fun. That would be really, that would be super cool. Um, though you're right, Karita, there would be a, uh, a. We wouldn't want him to appear to be a buffoon, right? Um, that would be something we'd have to be very careful about. Yeah. He's not a buffoon. Well, he no. he might be a buffoon. He's not just a buffoon. He's, he's, um, he's not merely a buffoon. Well, we don't want people just to laugh at him. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what the Flash cartoon is for. <laughs> we'll have so many great outtakes, you guys. It's I'm really looking forward to watching those. Yeah, yeah. Um, but episode two, episode two is a problem um, because, of course, the whole challenge there is that we're attempting to depict Middle Earth before conflict has really started, and so there's not really. You know, I, I could see one of the things that it seemed to me that you guys were really trying to do uh, in the outline is to try to sort of create some kind of tension and resolution, um, which I do think can, can work, but it's tough. It's tough in yeah. that context. We basically came up with a bunch of problems for them to solve, and then they solved them all sort of in the same scene. Right. Yeah, and that was about as much as we could do. It almost makes me wonder if we should perhaps go for a, a frame-heavy second episode as well. 
maybe instead of trying to string together the first episode stuff that we want to do, because again, the, the, in a sense, the goals that we're trying to accomplish in the first age story of episode two are relatively modest, right? The introduction of characters, introducing the overall theme of, you know, uh, the harmony among the Valar and how they need to work in harmony in order to achieve the perfection of the music. You know, they're not just a whole bunch of soloists. They need to work together uh, as an ensemble and, and Manway being the primary sort of instrument and voice of that of that harmony among them. Um, and that, of course, culminates outwardly in the establishment of their dwelling at Elmerin. But those are all, you know, we're basically running smack up against the, you know, the, uh, you know, times that are good to have and, uh, and days that are good to spend are easily told of and soon over uh, problem from chapter three of The Hobbit. Um, we've got nothing gruesome or palpitating going on. Uh, and so therefore it, it's, it's hard to make much of a story of it. So what if we were to make it more fragmentary? What if we were again to focus our primary effort, uh, our primary storytelling effort in episode two on the frame, um, and have um, have the first age material introduced in more more snippet like rather than having to try to build a continuous plot flow in episode two within the first age story? Um, what if we had that in a more segmented way? Uh, I don't think that that's a bad idea, but since we have you here right now, we'll go ahead and ask the question that we've been asking. So what, what kind of frame story are you looking for? What are you interested in seeing, and how will it play out? Hmm. Meaning, where do I want to end up, or...? Yeah, what is... Why are we seeing the frame? Why are What's we going the frame? on? Well, um... One of the things that one of the, the sort of the basic concepts that we were discussing way back at the beginning, um, when we were just in our frame episode back in season zero, um, was talking about establishing links, you know, ways in which we can show essentially, and it's like, it's like what you were talking about yourself a little bit earlier on, um, the relevance, right? The relevance of these stories. Um, we're in one sense. Uh, we're establishing in one sense we're establishing the connection between these old first age mythological legends and the third age world that everybody's more familiar with right so bringing in people like Elrond and Aragorn even if they don't realize he's Aragorn yet um, we are we're, we're contextualizing those ancient stories and grounding them in a point of contact that the that the audience can connect with but of course we're also prompting them and inviting them to connect with them themselves right to understand why you know what's important about these why should i care i mean that's one of the things about the silmarillion right i mean it, it, when people who read the silmarillion and put it down um find it you know confusing and possibly boring and it's just not the kind of thing it's not the kind of story it doesn't grab them like uh, you know, like the Lord of the Rings did, um, so they put it down. How can we? How can we? You know, mitigate that. How can we? How can we kind of mediate these stories to them? Um, 
in ways that will sort of show why they should care about these stories and why they should really invest themselves imaginatively in them. So the frame does that in those two different senses, right? It models it directly on the one hand, where we see those characters themselves investing in the stories and applying them to their own lives. But at the same time, it also establishes that familiar framework, you know, Rivendell, Elrond, um, you know, people who haven't read The Silmarillion aren't going to know the other things we're talking about, but they'll know those things, even if they've just seen the Jackson films. Um, so it gives it gives that it establishes that point of contact. So but of course, then the idea that we had about the frame in season zero was that we have the frames tell a story themselves um, and we have that story with the frame story um, really um not just paralleling in a kind of uh, in a kind of cartoonish way, um, but really coming into contact with you know both the frame is relevant to this to the, to the first age story and the first age story is relevant to the frame. We should be seeing them interacting with each other um, all the way through, so that there should be a resolution by the end. Like there should be we should be able to basically point to a story you know a story arc that happens within the frame. Um, and so I guess that's the thing that I would say that I'm looking for for us to set that up and ultimately to uh, uh, to move um, you know to move forward to that to bring that to a uh, to a satisfying ending at the end. Um, Can I pitch an idea in that yeah, direction? Definitely. Um, Marie, I've finally figured out how to look at the chat, uh, and that's been <laughs> useful. Um, Marie says um, they are learning to work together. There is conflict in ancient Arda. And um, I think we did try to write, or at least foreshadow in some cases, some of the conflicts that they were going to try to have um, in in episode two a little bit. Right, like the um, Ron Asse uh, right. business, yes. Exactly. Um would I was thinking it might be kind of interesting if in episode one we got this big huge sort of epic this is the the beginning of creation blah blah blah, blah and it's this huge sort of abstract thing it's very grandiose um, so the 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 overarching theme for the whole episode is is the conflicts that they have in ancient art and learning to work together even though they're small and not super high stakes. The, it does give us a lot of uh, space to explore the characters um, and like you suggested we can have these short sort of vignettes I guess very short um, stories told sort of in kind of like a like a folklorish very simple kind of primordial earth type fairy tale stories where this is the story of you know uh, of, of um, Aule and Olmo and and how why the mountains are not perfect conical shapes, right? Um, and and so having just tell these very succinct, short, uh, these two Valar had a conflict with one another uh, over this thing. What they were as they were trying to build Arda in the very earliest days, and then this was the solution they come up with. And then the mirror for that in the frame would be the first real sort of what in the heck are you doing from Gil Ryan. She's like, why on earth does he need to know that mountains were originally perfectly conical and right. now erosion right. has turned them into, like, this is completely absurd. Right. <clears throat> How does that sound? 
Yeah, I mean, she would. Yeah, so Gil Ryan's growing impatience with this. Um, yeah, I mean, again, the the I think there we would just have to make sure that the thread within the frame of that episode is sufficiently because basically it would mean that the the forward momentum of that episode would have to come entirely from the frame because it's not coming from the from yeah. the segments themselves. So we would have to make sure that 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 story it would mean essentially you know the way we were thinking about episode one and episode two here it would mean um it would mean really foregrounding um you know or really front loading i guess is what i mean to say um a lot of the gil ryan elrond stuff and maybe moving some of the stuff that you guys do later on in the outline earlier um so that a lot of that story moves forward in those first couple episodes um and then we'll, we'll be touching it again as we move forward um and as some things are kind of developed and resolved but it would it, it would have to be really front loaded in this way i kind of like that though because it it's it allows if we really establish it super well in one episode we just we don't really need to 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 hammer on it in later episodes. And I know, I remember at least through like episode seven or eight, um, there was a lot of not much of Gil Ryan getting to, to get in, in with, um, Elrond. Um, it was, it was mostly sort of the big moments where she kind of butted in to the frame. I seem to recall. Uh, I don't know if that's changed or if they added more, uh, towards the back half. But, um, yeah, I like having it sort of really clearly established in one episode rather than kind of stringing it along and then just making oblique reference to it later and everyone's everyone gets it because they're like, oh, yeah, I remember they had a whole episode about exactly that. Right, so. right, right. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. By the way, I feel, I feel bad we've lost Nick. Nick seems to have lost his connection, so... Yeah. We we don't we don't want a situation where it's like Gil Ryan enters the room and everybody goes oh god here comes the buzzkill again. Yeah, yeah. I mean right. I, I think there would be I would I would hope to see as as each individual vignette is kind of resolved in a positive way I would want to see kind of at least a demonstration of Gil Ryan's patience at the end of that episode even she might even start to get it a little bit she's like okay I don't really know if I agree that this is the right way to go about it but I see where you're getting at and okay fine it's your house <laughs> it's your house right yeah. right yeah um I wonder could and, we... and you are actually Estelle's uncle sort of in a really long <laughs> right. timeline kind of way <laughs> very very great uncle um uh I'm sorry, I'm just now thinking about could we incorporate could we save some could we save some Gilrine flashback to incorporate here? Is there is there a way that we can kind of carry over some of the some of that kind of drama of Gilrine's story? I think we could probably show the very earliest days of her marriage. Because, I mean, that was that was one of the things that was like a big deal, was that she was really young and he was super old and they might not exactly get each yes. other. They're technically from different generations altogether. Yes. Um, that would be one angle. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually true. That would be interesting to depict. And actually, that would fit since we're again, we're talking about. Um, I mean, one of the things we 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 you know you guys were talking about showing was like the Valar coming together, like Varda and Manwe coming together, and Alay and Yavanna coming together. Um, flashing back to Gilrine and Arathorn coming together would be kind of interesting in that context. And I think it would be easy for her to to flash back to that and then sort of get irritated, um, considering how her marriage ended, to be annoyed that she's, you know, reminiscing about how great everything was or how awkward everything was. You know, you know how when you think back to the beginning of your relationship and you're like, ah, it's funny now, but at the time it felt really, really awkward and weird. Right. Something like that, where she's getting nostalgic and then grumpy that she's getting nostalgic because this is not what she had in mind for Estelle. Right, right, right. <laughs> Carita's thinking about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. We're not doing a musical, <laughs> Carita. We're not. It's not going to happen. There will be no. There will be no. There will be no elaborately co uh, choreographed dance sequence in very colorful shirts. We're not going to do. That. <laughs> In this I season, mean, in this season, in this, in this season. season. No <laughs> fingernail The men in very tight pants. We, we're not going to see them all lined up having their fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the thrust of our story? <laughs> okay. yeah. Not this season. Save that one. Save that one for when uh, when Feanor's uh, sons get married. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> is, is this audible, by the way? It is? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Nick, we can back. The power just went out on my entire block. They're doing some more oh, stuff block for some reason. Oh, and I'm moving. And you're today. moving so today, too, right? Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> when it rains. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is pouring, absolutely. Wow. Wow, that uh, sounds like a great day. Well, we should probably wrap up before too long. But, I'm other other th sort of thoughts that you guys had or questions that you guys wanted to put for you know if, if, if there are other things again you know to me the biggest you know the biggest issue I wanted to raise and kind of think through together as we have been doing is how do we you know how could we refocus the opening of the season to uh, to really kind of I mean I was even I was even briefly contemplating as I was reading through the outlines like especially once again like things really picked up at season at episode four and I'm like should we just start there you know should we just <laughs> or, or like, oh, you know, begin at the beginning. Do the rest of the stuff in like flashback and something. Just shift, shuffle it around so that we're starting with episode four. And we again, that, again, that might be construed as an act of cowardice. <laughs> yeah, it might be. There's certainly, plenty of that to go around. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, anyway, I, I, I feel better about it. But Karina, go ahead. I, I do think you've given us some interesting things to talk about behind your back on Twitch. Um, we're going <laughs> to have a lot of fun with that. Um, I, I think it is a good idea to shift the death of Air of Thorn forward to give the, the opening few episodes some more urgency. So I'm on board with that and my musical number. Um, how does Nick feel about that? Nick, yeah. how do you feel? Are you, how do you feel about being vindicated for like a year? And he's gone again. <laughs> but yeah, like from last summer. Yeah, that, I I brought that. Have uh, way better. Oh, we're losing you. Uh -oh. Did I lose everybody? No. Oh, summer, summer. You're back now. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm 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 on 
I'm on the uh, I'm I'm on uh, the cell right now, so I'm at the mercy of the of the cell network. Sorry. Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. I, I would say this has been a banner day for Nick. Not only did he save the lamps, but yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, he's got Aragorn's death scene moved up. So, gosh. Just the fact that Nick did not say I was right and you were less right. Um, <laughs> he's a generous soul. <laughs> yeah. No, it's all good. It's all good. I'm perfectly willing to admit that Nick has been right all along about pretty much everything. So that's fine. Um, uh. Yeah, good. Well, and I, so I was saying though, other other thoughts, questions, other things that you guys wanted to raise, kind of look, you know, in the same kind of big picture way, looking back over things. Um, any other issues that you guys would see? We're probably going to come up with half a dozen questions once this webinar ends. Um, right, right. Right now, I can't think of anything. I'm just happy to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> my, my biggest issue was that the pace. The first three episodes. So. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, Brian, you've been on TV say. before. Get, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's always exciting. I never I have to tired. say. The whole time I was reading these, I thought, "Oh God, I wish Christopher Tolkien could read this." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think I that's would probably... be mortified. I would. I, I would I, die. Oh <laughs> gosh, no! I mean, just this whole project. I mean, I just think I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, he maybe is courageous enough to not. Thrilled with it. I, I, the... I still, yeah, I would die. I still I envision die. somebody walking into the office of a representative of the, the Tolkien estate with the you know the stack of thirty-five to fifty seasons worth of scripts, plunking it down on the desk and being like, "This was lovingly created. Please <laughs> let... be gentle. Please be gentle." <laughs> Well, that's a right. question from Marie of how yeah. other and mysterious we would like Ungoliant's origins to be. Do we? Oh, good. Yeah, and her um, good her her her. Tom Bombadil. Oh, and also, she do do we want a Tom Bombadil cameo? We totally want a Tom Bombadil cameo. A cameo. That oh. totally should happen. In fact, I think we should shoot yes. for a Tom but... Bombadil cam- cameo in every single season. Like at least one appearance by Tom Bombadil <laughs> in every single season. I like Stan Lee in the in the Marvel movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's totally that's totally. Uh, and like the the joke can be that he's doing he's doing exactly the same thing every single time. Like you know, like nothing has changed. Everything around him has changed, and there's Tom Bombadil still doing, looking exactly, still in the same wardrobe. He'll have the same wardrobe in season one that he has in you know season fifteen when we finally get to him in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, yeah, no, absolutely a Tom Bombadil cameo that actually has that actually has to happen. But um, uh, okay. Uh, Oh, ouch. Okay. Marie's full of difficult questions. Yep. Tavildo, Prince of Cats, yes or no? Oh, um, yes. Uh, well, I mean, certainly with a question of do we put Tavildo, Prince of Cats, and now, of course, this is obviously a, this is a, this is a later season question. Do we put Tavildo, Prince of Cats in the role that he has in Book of Lost Tales? No, of course not. We need Thu Sauron to be in that position and not to be feline at the time. So clearly Tavildo, Prince of Cats is not the one who has the prisons that Baron is put in and all that kind of thing. But do we have some kind of nod to Tavildo, Prince of Cats? Could we have some kind of, um, uh, you know, 
basically indulge in some kind of evil feline, uh, you know, Huan counterpart at some point in our story. Yeah, why not? Like, we're actually, I think we're going to be kind of spoiling for sub-villains down the road. I think we're going to really want to be developing sub-villains um, because Melkor, neither Melkor nor Sauron are going to be out in the field all the time and we're going to want villains who are visible and present and actually, you know, working against and in, in, in open, in, in active conflict with, that is to say, fighting. Uh, you know, so we'll get, you know, we'll get, Glor you know, uh, uh, Glaurung and, 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 and you know, uh, Karkaroth, you know, later on, but but those are all kind of limited in the scope of time in which they're really active. Um, so, by all means, yeah, let's introduce uh, Tevildo, Prince of Cats. It's going to change. It's not going to be the same as in the Book of Lost Tales, of course. But I have no, I have no problem with introducing a feline, you know, villain um uh involved there so yeah and what about Goliath? okay can we cast him this season and just give him really cool contact lenses but otherwise he's a he's a regular guy <laughs> right uh, um uh yeah was it uh um oh you know yeah Karina, you were saying we could have a feline motif in myron's garb yeah we could do something definitely cat-like about sauron in his early days um uh, no, I mean, I, 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 monstrous cat. Like, what's the downside of a monstrous evil cat, right? I mean, like, it's they, goofy. No, it doesn't have to be goofy. You know, I mean, I agree <laughs> that it's goofy in the Book of Lost Tales, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, is is like the giant heroic dog goofy? Who on isn't goofy? If who on isn't goofy, no, because dogs should, are awesome. Why should Tevildo be? What? So the cat can be. It doesn't have to be uh, goofy. It can just be evil. That's what Tifildo is. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound goofy at all. The way you no, leaned yeah. into evil. <laughs> he can be. He can be costumed like somebody out of the play cats, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's it's anyway. <laughs> let's just leave it at. Let's just leave it at. He doesn't have to be goofy, but there's a pretty high risk of it being. Goofy. <laughs> well, well and also he doesn't we'll have to look see. like a cat to be the Lord of Cats. He could look like a Bond villain. That's right. right. White he cat, just, stroking the white cool cat. We can. I, I, I'm just saying. Let's leave Tavildo, Prince of Cats, on the table, and we will see. <laughs> I, my my prophecy. My prophecy is that sometime in the next five years, the time will come when we will say that we really want like a villain or a subplot to introduce and I will say, yeah. aha, it is time for Tevildo, Prince of It Cats. is now the time. But for now, we're kicking the can, right? We're kicking the can on we're, Tevildo. We're, we're kicking the can. That's a, that's a several years down the road question. Um, uh, but okay, so yeah, so um, Karita uh, and Marie, Ungoliant. Ungoliant is tough. Really tough. Um... And in part, because as I was saying recently in some context or other, I think it was on this show, um, you know, Ungoliant is is one of those characters who's really old in Tolkien's conception. Like, I mean, she's there from the beginning, Gloomweaver and the Destruction of the Trees, there from the earliest Tolkien story that we know. Um, and yet, her, she's kind of, she kind of, and for that reason, she kind of predates his whole, you know, integrating everything into a mythological system that really works all together so she doesn't really fit comfortably uh, within it fully. Um, so Cthulhu. We had fights about this. Well, not yeah. fights, but we had arm wrestling about how we were going to well, do it. And one of the things, you know, when you guys have, um, when you guys have brought her in, um, when you guys brought her in earlier, like, when, like uh, in episode three, in the void, um, 
on the one hand, I really kind of like that. I mean, it's certainly creepy. Uh, but the risk, it seems, one of the risks of bringing on Golianton in the ways that you guys have is to make her bigger than she necessarily is. If you see what I, mean. I was overruled here. I really were... was against putting her in, in the void first. Yeah. Uh, and I was overruled, and I didn't want to be a spoil sport, so I did the best I could with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice I... dodge there. That was good. <laughs> um, I... I don't. Re- I guess my biggest problem is I don't really know myself how to fit her in. I feel like we have to. Um, you know, basically, it's just, it's one of those things that Tolkien didn't fully do that work, and and we're kind of left to do it if we're going to make it work. Where does she fit? You know, where is she in the hierarchy? You know, how the how, two how camps were. The two camps were she is absolutely definitely a Maya and should be clearly established as one, like it should be obvious to everyone else that or to the viewer that she's a Maya and then uh, there was Marie's angle which was no, she should be super mysterious and cool and nobody yeah. never explained in any real clear way. I was pretty firmly in the she is different than the other Maya and she is she's not hugely, hugely important but she, she is one of the most sort of mythic things um, that really caught my I, when I first read the Silmarillion, she is weird and different and mysterious. So I think if we left her fairly shrouded in mystery, I would be happy with it. But I'm a big Ungoliant fan, so yeah, that's I where mean, I'm coming from. Sh- shrouded with mystery. Yeah, Karina has a creepy fascination with Ungoliants. <laughs> <I do. laughs> This sort, this sort of, this sort of like uh, sinister crush on Ongoliant There, it's like, I, I do. I, I, I get it. I get it. Well, I mean, I, I, I was a little creeped out personally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I had to actually, I had to actually stop and realize that the confrontation between Nessa and Ungoliant, you know, when they're under the mountain, and Ungoliant tells her that she can't leave, are between um, Morena Baccarin and Summer Glau. <laughs> so we're gonna. Yeah. Firefly, Firefly fans really happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. River and what's I didn't realize that. Um, That's gonna be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was like, oh my gosh. I think it would be Firefly, really great. Firefly fans are gonna love that. I think it would be marvelous if there was. No, a we just have to get Nathan Fillion in about this. Just people yes. who Ungoliant is and what she's doing there and how she got here. I I would be delighted if people were weirded oh, out press. asking questions. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I mean, I was, I, I, I was just saying, I do think that Shrouded in Mystery is the best way to stay close to the text, essentially. You know, I mean, it's the safest thing to do, in a sense. But it's also kind of fun, you know. It is absolutely well, the, fun. The, the, the main reason I was in the camp of having her show up in the void uh, with Melkor was to give Melkor somebody to talk to out there, to give us something... To actually to have happened. Okay, What's that? See, he's supposed to be talking to Varda and nobody else. No, yeah. yeah, yeah, but okay. No, it's easy. It's easy. He's talking to himself. I mean, yeah. Melkor's going to be the king of the soliloquy. 
right? I mean, he's going to, that's why I think we, we, in that episode three shift to make it like more first person ish, right? I, it'd be awesome. I just have him narrate the whole thing to himself, you know, have him talking to, you know, and, and like, you know, grand soliloquies and absolutely, absolutely. So, such that, uh, like when he does get into a conversation with another person with Varda, it seems almost like weird weird you know like it's like a departure for him to talk to somebody for him to be considering somebody else and thinking of somebody besides himself i i i think again we'd have to be really careful we don't want it to look comical um and just to have people laughing at melkor from the beginning but but i mean yeah having him be alone doesn't mean nothing is happening or there's nobody to talk to he's got himself yeah that's all melkor needs that's true. Although this does, it, there are moments that are in other episodes which are set up by this. So just to, you know, like there's there's a few things that would have to change down the line. Just so that everybody's aware of that. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm not married to any of these things. Just you know, yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I should uh, I should let everybody go. It's uh, we are past the end of our time, and uh, it's uh, five minutes before I have to be somewhere else. So. Um, I think I'm gonna. Uh, we should thank everybody for joining us. Thanks especially to our panelists here today. Uh, I've uh, appreciated. It's been a, a lot of fun talking with you guys. We'll oh, it's been fun. We'll definitely have to have you guys it back. Was fun being here. Yeah, we had a good. You guys just blow me away. I mean, the work you guys did is just awesome. It's really yeah. good. Yeah. I was telling Corey. I said I'm so involved in the story. I can't write notes. I just. It was like I'm. Whoa, you know, I need to be writing, writing my thoughts. I was like, I can. I'm in the middle of reading. I'm like, I want to go to the next episode. Anyway, it was really good. Excellent. We're going to start blushing. <laughs> Thank you guys for having us. That really, you set uh... the bar now, right? So, like, when we go into season two, we'll be like, so, Nick and the gang, get to work. <laughs> I'll actually be able to do work next season. That'll be exciting. You may be tied to us for the next 20 you know we talk about 20 years it's like it's not just Dave and Corey and I now right That's it's right. like there's now a team That's of right. us tied to I'm 20 there. years I'm <laughs> I love the, the spotlight a little too much not to be told <laughs> exactly. just like Melkor in episode 3 see that's the thing yep. you, know, you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta channel that right Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I have often found myself guiltily comparing myself to Manway as we try to make all everybody's <laughs> ideas fit into the session. I really see that, Nick. You definitely that's that is absolutely accurate. <laughs> I have certainly played the the role of Melkor on more than one topic, so yeah. wrecking everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably Tavildo, Prince of Cats. Then, if we're <laughs> are you sure you're not Nessa? And Marie, <laughs> and Marie is Mandos. Marie is Mandos. Yes. <laughs> so it is doomed, right? Yes. She she keeps us honest. Exactly. Mostly. <laughs> well, thanks for this opportunity. It was a real blast talking to you guys for, uh, directly for a change. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us. And we'll definitely be having you guys back on future occasions. Um, and uh, so for everybody listening, remember, we're going to, we're now, we're officially done with season one and we are moving on to season two next Cat time. Party. So two weeks from today, we're going to be coming back and doing our. Uh, first episode of season two, which is where we're going to be planning the overall plot trajectory. So we're going to be mapping out, um, you know, 
basically the, sort of the outline of seasons one of episodes one through thirteen of season two, um, in in order to <clears throat> prepare us to begin the uh, the 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 some of the the pre production work that we need to do there, and then the uh, the discussions of those. So, um, <clears throat> so we're going to follow the basic shape of season number one, uh, essentially, um, but. Uh, uh, we'll we'll announce next time uh, sort of what the schedule of the upcoming uh, episodes are going to do before we start doing the plot episodes. Where I think we're going to do uh, possibly a couple episodes before we do the plot stuff. But anyway, we'll certainly start um, uh, next time with our overview of the plot. So be thinking about that. You know the 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 time frame that we had was from the Elves Awakening in Quivian and um, uh, through. Um, what we oh we were gonna we we were thinking about through the darkening of Valinor I believe as I as I recall um, being the overall mm-hmm. shape of season two um, so you know have the so your your homework for that is to read the next couple chapters of the Silmarillion as we're actually gonna move forward past uh, chapter two so um, uh, so be thinking about be thinking about those things and. Um, uh, be ready for that kind of uh, broad, uh, big picture discussion of what we're going to be covering next time. All right. Okay. So exciting, Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I uh, know. Very exciting. We've, I've been putting off talking about season two. You know, we keep, we keep saying, "Oh, but that's a season two thing. We can't talk about that yet." So it's going to be. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to actually get to elves uh, and uh, and introducing characters we've been waiting for for a really long time. Uh, so that's going to be. Well, we're gonna, now we'll have to find our new taboo topic. Exactly. Oh, there will be plenty of things. Like to well, we'll be kicking stuff to season three, so we'll have a season three, you know, kick it to season three. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, or further. There's always uh, another season. Or further. Season 17. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's with much of the stuff. All right. Okay, so thanks, everybody, and we will sign off. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. Godspeed.